Welcome back, everyone, to Talk Evidence, our monthly roundup of what's going on in the world of EBM. I'm Duncan Jarvis, multimedia editor for the BMJ, and I'm joined by our primed and ready evidence team. They're raring to rant, um, so hold on for that. Uh, guys, can I get you to introduce yourself? Helen. I'm Helen McDonald, UK research editor at the BMJ. Hi, my name's Carl Hennigan. I am Editor-in-Chief of BMJ Evidence-Based Medicine, Director of CBM and a GP. Well done. He remembered. Thank you. Finally. I'm feeling pretty calm today, actually. Not ranty, but let's see where we go. Well, I was going to say, everyone looked really good and sort of relaxed after the, the holiday period. And in the sort of 10 minutes that we've been chatting, organising <laughs> what we're going to talk today, the blood pressure has gone up and up and up. And for once, it's not being caused by Brexit, but obviously that's a thing that uh, we need to look at in the future at some point. Carl, have you got any idea about how that's going to affect research? It seems like it's going to be a big, messy thing. Is that something you've been thinking about? Are you trying to now get me in trouble to make disagreements with everybody, <laughs> basically? Possibly. Look, there's very one of the things in terms of it, what I would really like in the debate is to start getting some evidence. And I would say that. And I think when I read headlines and so forth, a bit like we had the recent one about there's going to be a shortage of medicines, I really would like some insightful debate and articles that really tell us about how do we purchase medicines. The shelf life, for instance, insulin is a one-year shelf life. When you take it out of the fridge, it's got to be stored in the fridge, and then you take it out and you've got about a month. So to me, this has now become a really important issue for us to look at the structural ways in which we deliver healthcare, how we purchase medicines, and particularly then understanding what the problem is Mm. And Brexit like say, might be highlighting the problem, and I think we can't carry on with the status quo. No, and if you're interested and you haven't heard, uh, we will have just last week published an interview with Martin McKee and David Nichols about how little kind of evidence there has been in in the current Brexit planning. So go back and listen to that. Helen, how are you after your holiday? I'm very relaxed, thank you. Good. All ready to go back into... Uh, deciding what to start and stop. So we've got a couple of things, as always, that we, we will recommend either starting doing or stopping doing, or sometimes we recommend to start, stop doing things. Um, but Helen, you've been looking at recurrent venous thromboembolism. VTE for short, Duncan. Yep. Yes, I'll, I'll give you all the jargon. VTE, uh, which is basically a mixture of DVT, deep vein thrombosis, and PE, pulmonary embolism. Uh, so I picked out a paper that was published in the BMJ over the summer for our um, stop start. Well, I kind of wanted it to be a stop start, and then I became a bit uncertain about whether it was a stop or a start. It's the um, story of our life. And maybe our listeners can help us out and tell us what they would do. Um, so this paper is looking at what happens to people with one previous unprovoked DVT or PE when they stop taking anticoagulants. It's looking at the proportion of people that get another um, either DVT or PE. 
And at the moment, there's weak recommendations from professional societies for indefinite anticoagulation. Um, but this recommendation is weak because the evidence and the, the balance of benefit and harm of uh, bleeding with long-term treatment isn't particularly well characterised. So the authors of this piece say that some more prospective studies have come out, both from trials and observational um, studies. And so they've done a systematic review and meta-analysis of now around 7,000 people looking at uh, the risk of having another event at two years, at five years and 10 years after you had your first VTE and then you finished your treatment. So at two years, around 16% of people have had another problem. At five years, about 25% of people have had another problem. And at 10 years, about 36% of people have had a problem. So where's the uncertainty? What, what did you worry about? So... Hold on a second. Well, I can come in. No, now. you can't come in. Come on, I can I, come in. No, I'm ready. No, I'm not ready We've for you. Been, I've been doing the evidence <laughs> wind, research on this. Wind come on. your neck in. We will we'll we'll come, come to you in a second, you, Carl. We will come to you See, in I told time. you he was ready to come. I'm ready come to, to you jump in. in. Um, but they, the authors also found that there was some difference, um, and particularly between uh, men and women and the site of where the initial uh, problem was. And the thing that I found hard about this was trying to think if you had somebody in front of you um, who was taking one of these drugs, what does this evidence really mean for them? Should they stop taking it at three months or should they go on indefinitely? And there were several things missing in this paper, which meant that I didn't think I could come up with an answer. One was that it didn't include the harms of anticoagulation to balance the potential benefits that you might see. Secondly, it didn't really tell us much about the values and preferences of people in this situation. And also it didn't tell us very much about whether just anticoagulating forevermore was the only option. So particularly, it didn't tell us whether these next events that happened to these people happened around another risky activity, like having a flight or a surgery, or if they just happened again in a very unprovoked uh, way. So, for example, might there be a case for giving people treatment for short periods of time? You keep saying this word, unprovoked BTE. Yes. Yeah. And this is one of my learning... Is this your way in? Yeah, this is my <laughs> way in. Okay, Stop after a break. Stop perverting the course of <laughs> What my... do we mean by unprovoked Ah, well, so they explain that quite well in the paper. So an unprovoked VTE is when there's no uh, major clinical risk factor. So there's been no substantial surgery or trauma, no active cancer or thrombophilia, no family history of VTE and no hormonal therapy. So my take on this was that really, if we were going to come up with a verdict, that this evidence isn't very clear and probably needs to go through some kind of guideline process to feed in that extra information and there was an interesting editorial attached and I think the key thing that I wanted to highlight from that is although on one hand that risk that 10-year risk seems quite high 36% of people on the flip side about two-thirds of people do not have a recurrence and one thing that they were making um, clear in the editorial is that we have to think about what the harm would be to those two-thirds of people who don't go on to have a future event because particularly when you look at um, the mortality of those events, that was fairly low. Okay, uh, I thought you said something really interesting, that when we decide to change practice or influence practice or inform decision-making, we should wait for the guideline. 
Well, in my mind, if we do that, as doctors, we may as well all retire immediately because you don't need doctors. You just need loads more guidelines. But actually, we know guidelines are actually at times useless, influenced and actually don't helpful. But actually... Well, the guidelines that I would want would be quick, unconflicted, (laughs) including people that aren't just haematologists. That seems like a dream world. So, but... But interestingly, what what this does show is what's really nice about this is you ask a question. Is to me, I looked at this evidence. I thought actually the risk of recurrence is high, and much higher than what I thought was previously. It's ten percent at one year and keeps climbing to one in every three people by ten years. Therefore, the next question is what happens if you have treatment, if you extend the treatment beyond three months. And interestingly, there's a recent uh, systematic review on extended anticoagulation for VTE published in CHEST at exactly the same time. So you need some searching skills. You need to ask the right clinical question and go looking for the answer. So give us our verdict then. Yeah, so what's interesting about this is a second, this second review included 16 placebo-controlled randomised trials of vitamin K antagonists like warfarin, or direct oral anticoagulants such as rivaroxaban, doax in effect. And what they said, this is important, the average treatment duration is only 12 months. So I think we've got evidence of what you can do up to 12 months. And interestingly, both treatments, vitamin K antagonists and doax, reduce your risk of recurrent VTE. But only the doax reduced your risk of mortality because the warfarin and vitamin K antagonists, their so benefits. How much did they reduce it? Well, if you look at the risk difference for recurrent VTE, mm-hmm. actually, if you look at something like VTE recurrence was about 5% with vitamin K antagonists and 5% with DOAC. So that's a number needed to treat for every 20 people you treat, you'll present one VTE. However, if you look to excluded the trials with greater than 30% patients with a provoked VTE, because the problem is they had provoked and unprovoked VTE. So we only really want to know about the unprovoked. Yeah, so yeah. actually the benefits were much greater. There were about 6% with DOAX and actually about 11% with warfarin. So actually their benefits are much seemingly greater in, in unprovoked. However... There's a problem because you need an individual analysis, data analysis, to look at, split out the subgroups that you're really interested in. So there is a bit of missing information. What do you mean by the subgroups you're really interested in? You well, mean you're interested that are in at higher risks. They're looking at yeah. So many of the warfarin or... trials were done in provoked and unprovoked before realizing these were important issues to look at these subgroups separately. Okay, so often, certainly. remember, this is on published data alone. Interestingly as well, the editorial picked up, this is a, a, an important clinical condition. It is, uh, the incidence is quite high, about one in a thousand people aged 60 to 69 and about one in a hundred of those over 80. So it's a common condition. Mm. But actually, we have a small number of trials and actually a small number of people to inform what we should do. Mm. But I do think there is a verdict that suggests to me here is if you inform the decision here at, at, at one year, the evidence suggests you can get important reductions in VTE if you continue treatment for one year. And I think if your bleeding risk is high, I think the benefits of of treatment may not outweigh the risk of bleeding. But actually, if they're low, it's very clear the benefits of treatment. So you're would... saying at the moment, the guidelines say a weak recommendation for indefinite treatment. So you're sort of modifying that to maybe give a clearer recommendation for a year's worth of treatment. Correct. And then what are you saying beyond that? Well, that's this is great. And that's because then you've got an evidence uncertainty. So this really does guide the need to do an urgent trial for extended treatment. And actually, this is a problem about 
our problem with pragmatic trials and embedding them in routine practice. We now need to get on and answer this question, really important. What happens if you extend treatment beyond one year? If we do it in the normal way of ethics committees, funding and waiting for publications, it'll probably take five to ten years to start to answer this question. So what would you do? I would like to see embedded trials in routine clinical practice where we say there's a direct uncertainty now. What happens if you're on treatment for 12 months? Some people have to be randomised to extend treatment and some people have to stop and discontinue. And we'd be able to produce that in a real-time way to understand what's going on. So that's two things to start, potentially. I stunned you into silence there nearly, didn't <laughs> Just for I? a second. Uh, two things to potentially start. Extending um, treatment for unprovoked VTE for a year, possibly. Does Helen agree? Has he convinced you? Well, look, the thing is to inform the decision. You can't make the decision for somebody. The question as a clinician is, you would present the benefits and the harm. So if you understand the evidence, you would say, look, your risk is high at about 10%. And actually, in, in looking at the treatment trials, for every 20 people you treat, you can reduce uh, one v- venous thromboembolism. That's quite a big reduction in risk, absolute risk reduction of about 5%. You don't have to convince me, Carl. <laughs> no. <laughs> yes? No? Well, I think the verdict is clearer a year but I still think it's quite uncertain after that I think it's totally uncertain after a year that's the problem and 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 I think that's where we now don't have a system for saying this is an important question to reduce uncertainties so there's our second thing to start pragmatic trials in the NHS okay so first start done um now the second one Carl when you were saying this I was uh I was pretty surprised you're advocating for more testing, which I think this is probably the first time on the podcast I've ever heard that. Mm. Yeah, no, that's an interesting one, isn't it? I think with the sort of overdiagnosis, too much medicine and all the issues with screening. But uh, this paper really caught my attention because it's uh, CRP, C-reactive protein testing to guide antibiotic prescribing for COPD exacerbations. I have to declare a conflict of interest here. I know the lead author. It's uh, Professor Chris Butler. He's based in the Department of Primary Care where I work. But this is a really interesting trial of trying to understand can you reduce antibiotics by giving a CRP testing. Just in the background, there is a systematic review that has shown uh, CRP testing does reduce antibiotic use. And that's been around for quite a few years across a wide range of respiratory infections. But this is in COPD exacerbations, which are difficult to manage because you're never quite sure if it's an inflammatory cause or whether underpinning that is an infection. So the tendency is is to just go in with the antibiotics in a just-in-case format. Where were they looking at this? What, what What's the population? Is primary care, secondary care? Yeah, so this is done in general medical practice in England and Wales, and it was particularly 86 GP practices for acute exacerbation of COPD. They either received usual care guided by CBRP point-of-care testing or just a usual care alone group who basically had no testing. And they had a total of 653 patients underwent randomization. And what they found is in the CRP-guided group, the reported antibiotic use compared to the usual care group was by reduced by 20% from about 77% down to 57%, with no differences in some of the complication rate, which would be concerned about like your COPD gold score, which is like your severity of your symptoms, or any of the other adverse events like hospitalisation. There are a couple of questions I wanted to ask you about this one, Carl. Um, 
One was I was a bit worried that only around 50% of the people who were eligible for the study actually took part. And I was a bit concerned, therefore, about how generalisable this might be because we don't know very much about those people. I wondered if those were older people because the the average age in the study, I think, was sort of mid to late 60s. Um, And the other thing was around what happened in the control group and particularly whether there was a sham CRP done in that group or not. I couldn't quite make it out from the paper. So I think the thing that is interesting about testing is you have this indeterminate tester area. So people, some people come in with COPD exacerbations and you say to them, they're completely well. And actually, there's not a chance you're going to give them the antibiotics. And some people are so unwell that you actually would be giving them antibiotics and you're you're not so them two groups of people are the people who you might not put in the trial although they're eligible you actually the gp might make a decision and say look i'm not even considering giving you a crp test because i'm not even considering giving you antibiotics and i think that's right but there will also be some people who are so severely unwell you wouldn't put them in the trial and then you've got so you think that's what's happening so there's a proportion of that group and that, that happens in all trials particularly in infection and I think you have to think about the generalizability of the evidences. It applies to a group where there's uncertainty. And in exacerbation, that's quite a wide group. I was going to say 50% of people, the uncertainty well, there is pretty high. But there will be some people who just say, I don't want to participate in a trial. Mm. I don't like needles. I don't like, I don't like actually going in the trial. I can't be bothered to do the diary. I'm too old or too infirmed. And I think that might be the bit where you say some of the elderly patients might mm. go, I just can't be bothered with putting into this trial. And some of the GPs go, I'm not going to subject them to this follow-up. Mm. And I think there is a generalizability issue, but I think that's outweighed by the size of the effect. And if, and what you could do with this is, this is where an opportunity is for real-world data is, is as you put the test into practices, you want to make sure you get similar reductions in antibiotic use. Otherwise, you should withdraw it and say it doesn't work. So there's mm-hmm. some way of generalising evidence that's important. So that's the first point. The second point was, I think, is an important point, is why did the control group not get tested? And then you could have tested them but withheld the CRP result. And then, and that's important, that's what you call the sham test in a way, and it's mentioned in the limitations as a slight problem. Because people might behave differently once they know they've had a test and they know they've got a result, and the GPs might behave differently, and the individuals might behave differently just because they've had a test, and we know that happens. The second issue is you knowing that somebody's in the control group and not got a test means you may behave differently as a GP. So I think... It would have helped to have free arms in effect, but I suspect that's a, an issue of funding and pragmatism to deliver the trial and not make it overcomplicated. So, yeah, let's go then to the author. That's Chris Butler from Oxford. Good morning. I'm Chris, Chris Butler. I'm, uh, I guess, first and foremost, a, a GP and a uh, researcher at the Nuffield Department of Primary Care Health Sciences at the University of Oxford, The first thing we had to do was to get really clear about what our research question was. Perhaps, importantly, we figured out what our research question wasn't, so uh, to start off with. So we we, we weren't focusing on whether antibiotics are effective or not um, in people with, say, high or low CRP. We felt that work had already been done. Um, 
so we 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 didn't want to repeat um, a study which addressed whether antibiotics were effective in those with a low CRP. We, we, we wanted to move it on from that to the pragmatic question, and that is, what, what would happen to prescribing and patients' outcomes if the clinicians making those decisions had access to a point-of-care CRP test? So the, the trial was really about providing um, a point-of-care test kit and making it possible for clinicians to have that result before they made the decision. So I hope that's clear. We, we, it's not a question of antibiotic efficacy primary, primarily. It's a question of what is the effect of testing on clinicians' behavior and then subsequently on patients' behavior. And that's also pretty important because if you're doing a trial of cost-effectiveness, which is what we were doing, you want to embed it in as close as possible to routine care. You want to make it a pragmatic study that could be translated into usual practice or easily scaled up into that from the trial. Now, when you do studies of cost-effectiveness, you've got to take into account subsequent patient behavior. And if a person gets an intervention or not, not only point-of-care testing, but point-of-care testing as well, they are likely to be influenced by that intervention in their subsequent help-seeking behavior. So if they had a point-of-care test which they knew was taken into account, um, that might influence how they behave subsequent to that consultation. Um, for example, they may be reassured if the test was low and didn't get antibiotics that you know they just could 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 sit it out a bit longer and capturing help seeking whether they come back get antibiotics subsequently go to the hospital um, take over the counter medication all of that is important to capture and that is influenced by knowing how you were treated and therefore we decided to do an open study and and, and I'll add this Duncan that there are so many examples of small-scale, highly controlled trials um, proving efficacy that you get quite, quite a dramatic uh, estimate of effect often in, in, in these sorts of trials. But when you translate them into actual practice, estimates tend to be less. So uh, we, we set out to do a pragmatic trial that would reflect what would happen as close as possible into everyday care, and hence the design we did. I think this is a, the time to take this sort of test into real-world practice and see if it's feasible. But I'm not sure if it is feasible. We only have 10 minutes for a consultation. How are you going to build this in? Because the test often takes more than two minutes to give you a result, so you're taking half the time of the consultation out. Just see, how, does, how does the test actually work in primary care? What's the... Well, that's a bit... I'm not quite sure of the timings, but you get an individual, so I suspect one well, of the I suspect best... you've got to have some fancy piece of kit, yeah. which most people don't have. Yeah. And it's normally a finger stick of blood, and then you put it in the machine, and the machine does a reading, and that takes a few minutes to bring out the result. So there's a there's a sort of process that takes four or five minutes, and you get the results. The best an upfront investment. Yeah, an upfront machine. investment. And, and to be honest, given the time constraints, 
often what you need here is some nurse sat there who can say, I could just do this for you now, but that doesn't often happen. So I think this is the problem of how do you implement testing like this into primary care? And you must realise the benefits, otherwise it's just more work. Well, this particularly for, for, for GPs sounds like more work and cost for them um, for the benefit predominantly of reduced antibiotic prescriptions, which is obviously a good thing for the world and a good thing for their patients to, to some extent. But it it doesn't feel like it's going to pay them back. <laughs> Do you yeah. know what I mean? Well, there is a sort of effect that actually they does pay you back because if you can start to have, it takes a long time, but if you have a system that reduces the number of antibiotics, it feeds back to the patients. And what you hope is you have less work slightly in the long run because people mm. will start to understand when you have an exacerbation, when it's a sort of one that requires antibiotics versus actually it's the indeterminate ones where maybe you can step back and not use antibiotics. Interesting. So over time with the test, you you might then make the test redundant because you've trained the population to... Yeah, uh, I'm not sure you would, though, because the test is forming part of you deciding not to do antibiotics. So in essence, you're still going to consult to say, yeah. can I have this test? Yeah, but also I think the clinical experience. So there will be always some people in the indeterminate phase where they look severely unwell and their CAP is negative. But actually, there will be an educational effect where over time you'll start to say, yes, actually, that's a sort of group of symptoms. And I wouldn't underestimate the pair of diagnostic reasoning and clinical Mm. experience in learning that type of presentation and pattern Mm. and its relationship to disease. And that is what they call the clinical gestalt. But I think there's a lot still in the reasoning aspect of experience, of understanding the feedback oh, I thought this was the type of person who did have an infection, but their CRP is normal and they did get better. Maybe next time I'll see it that way. So there we go. For the first time, I think, ever, we've had two things to start doing on the podcast, potentially extending treatment up to a year, but maybe not beyond because we don't have the evidence yet uh, for unprovoked VTE. And now start testing for... C-reactive protein and COPD exacerbations if we can work out how to implement it properly. So I think this is really interesting because this is evidence-based medicine. I think the first one is to start informing the decision based on this evidence. You've got two pieces of really good evidence. Here's the proportion of VTEs you might expect and here's a type of reduction if you extended treatment. That's probably an individual clinical decision where you could implement that tomorrow. The other one's actually more of a practice strategic, probably even a a clinical commissioning group. You can't just say, I'm going to have a point of care test tomorrow. You need procedures and you need to understand how it's going to work and you need funding. So that's a commissioning decision. So that's probably a little bit longer, but commissioning groups could say, actually, we could start to look at this and do this across a range of practices. So we've been talking in that last bit about sort of different kinds of uh, implementation potentially. Um, and there's a new CMO report out looking even more broadly at uh, at global health things. And Carl, you thought this was a, a, an interesting thing to talk about. Yeah, this is sort of like my one to read for the week, although it's, it's quite a long report. But I think um, 
This is quite an interesting report by the Chief Medical Officer, Sally Davis, who's stepping down imminently. And it's just the way I, I would recommend reading it. It's first is it consists 21 letters from global health leaders who are responding to a summary and recommendations about what to do in global health. And that's quite an interesting read. And then it's set out in these three areas of these letters come under equity, sustainability and security. So it's a bit like a thematic analysis of what these leaders have said. And within there, these are just really three interesting areas that sort of present an idea that we go from a sort of population public health look at healthcare that feeds into individual care. And so, for instance, in terms of equity, look, it cites a 40-year gap in the life expectancy between a woman born in Sierra Leone compared to one born in Singapore. It's an amazing difference. And then shows, look, this actually happens in England where women born in the most deprived areas have a health life expectancy, which is 21.5 years less than for women born in the least deprived areas. So I would put this down on your list of one to read because it's actually a very interesting document. Mm, and that's an extraordinary difference still within the UK that we have a, a an over 20 year difference in life expectancy. Yeah, and I think these are the sorts of things that actually are very difficult to challenge and do something about. But actually, we need to have an approach which is consistent and sustained to trying to solve some of these structural issues about this is about prevention, about the choices we make as individuals and how we structure society to improve healthcare as opposed to waiting till it all goes wrong and coming at the back end and trying to fix it when it's all too late. Mm. And this is these are the big questions that I suppose the CMO is meant to to talk about, but uh, they never seem to have any particularly simple answers. Well, I think also they get slightly buried some of these documents, but I think this is a, a really important document to have a a sort of an approach to thinking of the big global health issues. And now we're now interconnected in health. It's not just the UK. It's a global health where many of the problems, such as non-communicable diseases, are very similar across the world and are high priorities in terms of prevention. Mm. Well, why don't we actually just talk to Dame Sally Davis about why she she's done this and, and why it's interesting? I'd be very interested in how she structured this report and why she did it in this way and what we think we can take from it. Yeah. I'm Catherine Faulkner, um, Editor-in-Chief of the Chief Medical Officer's Annual Report for 2019. Something that we really wanted to come through in the annual report was um, kind of the mutual benefit of engaging globally um, and recognising that uh, there are aspects that the UK leads on but there are many aspects that we don't and there are many things that we can learn from partners around the world. The particular example that um, I was fascinated by um, was the HPV vaccine rates in Rwanda which are 10% higher than they are in the UK and just thinking about what lessons we can learn from uh, the Rwandan approach to apply to our own health system so it was very much about the mutual benefit of the UK's engagement. Mm. think about global health and you think about the breadth of it it doesn't naturally lend itself to that deeply academic um, approach what we were concerned about was that if we had you know a chapter on tb a chapter on malaria we were going to miss we were always going to miss something we were always going to upset somebody um and we, we were just not going to be able to cover the breadth of topics um by taking that approach so what we um thought would be more interesting was to take a slightly more strategic view um, and ask global leaders to write letters to Dame Sally 
which were meant to be sort of um, their perspective of the UK's engagement, their perspective of the challenges that we as a global community face, um, and also presenting some solutions for the future. And um, I mean, I think we managed to get an absolutely amazing lineup of um, people from around the world. It was very important to us that we had representation from around the, re- the world, that we had representation from people in academia, from people in NGOs, from people in government. Um, we really wanted to get a variety of different voices who were able to present um different opinions. What we also did was engage very heavily with stakeholders in the UK. We worked extremely closely with colleagues at the Department for International Development. We worked with um, colleagues from within the Department of Health and Social Care, from Public Health England, um, from Health Education England, you know, the Royal Colleges. Um, We held a stakeholder workshop with all sort of, you know, the, the key leaders in the field. Um, And we invited people to contribute recommendations along the process. We we asked all of the authors. So once we'd asked authors to um, contribute, um, and uh, what was really impressive with this report is we actually only had one person say no through the whole process, (laughs) and that was just because of time schedules. So I think that really speaks volumes about how the UK is seen globally. Um, People felt this was a very important piece of work. But I would have a long conversation with them um, discussing what it was that we were wanting to get out and and really, you know, emphasising to them that the CMO would be making recommendations on the back of this, and this was a chance to present solutions um, for the future. So there we have a report which uh, is talking about things that can can help people's health. Um, and this is something, I suppose, in a way that uh, another report, Helen, that you wanted to talk about. And everyone prepare yourself for the rant. So this is an open consultation uh, from the UK government looking at advancing our health prevention in the 2020s consultation document. And it's quite interesting. Like the report that Carl mentioned, it's pretty wide reaching. Um, And you know that I'm a very diplomatic and positive person. So I'd like to say that there are things that are nice in here. For example, it has this very nice quote at the beginning or near the beginning that says, we need to view health as an asset to invest in throughout our lives, not just a problem to fix when it goes wrong. Everybody in this country should have a solid foundation on which to build their health. So that I like. Now I can go on to my rant, which is more about how evidence is um, used in this report. And I guess what I hope that I would see in this report as I was reading it was a clear understanding of the scope of this and how it was put together and what were the methods of the report. Because within it, you find quite open-ended question sections and they seem to appear in areas which are very key um, and the questions seem to address areas where there isn't very much evidence and this is quite disappointing because the areas which seem to be lacking in evidence are those areas of the report which I think the government are trying to highlight is really important for health so they're about reducing obesity, getting people to exercise, getting people to stop smoking, improving our diet, um, improving our environment, these these types of things. So I think it's it's kind of disappointing that we don't have evidence on those issues. And I think there's a risk in the way that the report is phrased, asking people to submit 
evidence that you are going to end up with a kind of unsystematic collection of little projects that people may or may not be doing saying oh why don't you do what we've done over here to try and reduce obesity without these things being properly thought through or having been properly tested and potentially we're going to spend an awful lot of money on that. And this is kind of a double-edged rant and I thought the way that I would draw Carl into my uncharacteristic (laughs) rant was to say that it also mentions health checks. And one area on health checks which I thought was really interesting is it basically asks you, the reader of the report, to submit them evidence on how you could improve health checks. Specifically, could we sort of add more tests to them? Could we do them in different populations? How can we really get them working for people? And I I guess that feels a bit frustrating because, well, Carl has ranted before on this podcast about the fact we have really good evidence that they don't work. So I guess it's sort of disappointing that in this report you see people looking for ways that it might work rather than just saying, look, here's a huge amount of money that we're spending, which actually we could just say, let's just stop doing this and pour some of that money into obvious areas where there is a total dearth of good evidence to inform national policies on very important health topics. Mm. So I'm nodding here, so you can see, you can feel me completely nodding. I'm itching my feet. Yeah, again, great report. Some really important statistics that are emerging, like in the report, nearly one in four reception age children are overweight or obese. And by the time you're an adult, two in three adults are overweight or obese. I find these statistics mind-blowing in terms of, aren't we coming into real problems? And then one in four women and one in five men in England are classed as physically inactive, doing less than 30 minutes of moderate physical activity per week. So the problem is like a tsunami isn't it? It's You're going to really up the ante on this round. <laughs> it is a tsunami. And we, if we don't get our act together, are going to be in deep trouble. And then you realise that what you're saying is, what the government seems to be doing and the health system is just throwing a bit of cash here and here. So we have now selected five successful childhood obesity trailblazer authorities. And we've given them 1.5 million over the next three years. And the approach to the collection of evidence and the approach to actually evaluating this is, is the problem. One is there's no registry. We have no idea what's going on. So we don't know if there's five successful ones and 50 unsuccessful ones out there. So we need a registry. Who's doing what interventions? And then we urgently need a robust approach that allows us to do policy initiatives but actually understand what the hell's going on and whether they work because my concern here is in three years time they'll be going here's a few more million for other trailblazing projects and we go around in circles and I've seen this for 20 plus years in policy people have their sort of what they think is the best initiative and it's their their, what they really fancy and like and they think they're going to be important and they spend the money here And when they come to the end of the project, they then decide we need an evaluation. So we're missing the tools for evaluation in practice. And I think this is actually uh, a really important issue that needs to be solved. And you're right, in terms of health checks, the evidence shows that they're not cost effective and they have no impact on the important clinical outcomes. And therefore, if you're going to put all these resources and all these times, you really want to have an approach that says, what's the benefits? And where do we realise the benefits? Because otherwise you're just adding more and more work in and what's happening is you swamp in general practice and there's no time for the real important work to go on. Thank you. Well, 
we'll put the link in uh, podcast text as always for these things uh, and so if you're out there and you care about evidence and you have some evidence that's uh, much more systematic than the stuff they might be getting then perhaps you can feed into that report too Carl, you're clutching there a piece of paper that talks about a new review for statins. What's that? Yeah, so that was a news item in the BMJ, which says that Norman Land has asked for an independent review, and this letter's been signed by eminent people like our editor-in-chief, Fiona Godley, and I was really interested in what the need was for that review. Why do we need an independent review? What do we think we'll learn above what we already know, that there are huge and some uncertainties in low-risk people, and the current evidence, to me, won't answer that? So you think we're there for... We know what we know about statins already. We know for in low-risk people and in the elderly, we need some more randomised controlled trial evidence to reduce the uncertainties. And some of that's got to be done independent of manufacturers. And it's got to be done in real-world practice where we understand the benefits and we collect data on important adverse events. We need, to, we need that funding and to get on with it. There is a trial uh, in New Zealand, I think. It might be New Zealand or Tasmania, one of the places that's looking in the elderly. So that's going on, and it won't realise till about 2021. So there's a trial in the elderly. But I think in low-risk people, I do think, actually, to reduce uncertainties, you just need more evidence. You can't have a balance of people saying it's it's yes or no. It just tells you there's a lack of evidence. Therefore, the evidence needs to be forthcoming by doing another trial in low-risk people. So they could maybe divert their funds from the independent review suggestion to correct, a trial. Correct, correct. And I'm saying let's get on with that trial and in low-risk people in primary care, let's please do the trial and not waste time doing the independent review. But I might be convinced by the editor-in-chief, Fiona Godley, who might sack me now, <laughs> about the need for it. <laughs> well, let's get Fiona into the studio and ask her what that's about. I think it's interesting that they, the framing of that, an independent review into the benefits and harms of statins rather than what actually is best for reducing cardiovascular disease. I think it's a very, well, that's difficult because how would you find anybody who's independent? What does that mean? Well, we can ask you. So if you're there also online, giving your opinion about a report, maybe you want to get in touch with us and tell us what you think of the podcast. Go to bmj.com slash podcast and there you'll find out how to perhaps get your voice on here, ask questions of Carl and Helen, uh, if you have anything you want to say about VTE or uh, C-reactive protein testing, do let us know. If you've got to this point in the podcast and you haven't subscribed yet, then you really should. We're going to be back in a month and you will hear us uh, ranting more about uh, EBM. We're in all the places that you can find podcasts. Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, everywhere. Whilst you're there as well, if you want to rate and review us, that really helps other people to find us as well. So, until next time, it's goodbye from me. Goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Bye. Bye.